Good morning. It is Kale and Company live for a Friday on AM 1450 WKXL 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and streaming 24 hours a day on nhtalkradio.com. So wherever you might go on a vacation, you can take us with you. And I know that's reassuring to know. Our guest on this portion of Kale and Company today, uh, one of the great outdoorsmen of our time, whether it be in the woods or in the deep blue waters. He also, by the way, is the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, Neil Levesque. Neil, how are you today? I'm great. What's a vacation? I don't know what a vacation. Vac- vacation. You, you've never heard that word, have you? <laughs> <laughs> Not this summer. Uh, so, Neil, what what's the latest from the the great outdoors? Well, uh, I just got back from Denali National Park, and I uh, did a backcountry, a solo backcountry trip into the wilderness for four days by oh. myself. Obviously, being solo. Yeah, and that was amazing. So a lot of grizzly bears. <laughs> now, now, what were your accommodations? Did you have a, a cabin, a tent, or, uh, you know? How... I had a tent that my wife described as a um, coffin. As so, a c- uh, close quarters, huh? Yeah, 50 pounds on my back, which is actually not that much. But uh, it was uh, a, a, a big adventure. I've studied the guy that this established the park back in the 20s and I wanted to go where he had a cabin for a year and a half and I did that and uh, but I had to train for about six months and I still I still figured out that I was out of shape when I was there but it was wow. a lot of fun a lot of interesting a lot of bear interactions a lot of bear sightings uh, I found a dead grizzly bear cub that I had to report because I actually do DNA testing on those things huh and uh, so it was. It was fun. So, so what kind of interaction did you have with grizzly bears? So they generally were, you know, a couple hundred yards away. They they don't want to be around you generally, but there's no darkness, and so you wear eye shades when you go into the little tiny tent at night. So you know, here I am lying there in my tent trying to sleep, and uh, there were twice where they were pretty close by. I couldn't tell how far away they were. They weren't right next to my tent, but I definitely saw a lot of them, and there were signs everywhere. I came out of the I came out of the park and stayed at a campsite at the base of Denali, and uh, two young guys had come out. They were there in the backcountry for eight days, and they had over 25 really close calls bears so i didn't have any of that thank god because Mm. they're not probably going to hurt me but i'll probably have like you know a cardiac arrest (laughs) my goodness wow and and this is all risk factor uh, all all in alaska Uh, man and uh, as as you said uh that that's got to be bizarre i mean you have daylight virtually around the clock yes and so you know when you'd hear a bear you know, a hundred yards away, and you're laying there in the tent. It's it's like a slow rise of your eye shades <laughs> over up to your forehead. Wow. At that point, thinking, okay, should I just ignore it, or should I just 
and try to go back to sleep, you know. So it was, uh, and the you know the light out is is a really interesting phenomenon. But um, yeah. you can you, it makes so that you can keep hiking at you know eight or nine at night. You can just keep going. Wow, that's amazing, Neil. You never cease to amaze me, uh, really. But you're. You know, your adventures uh, in the great outdoors, uh, on the high seas, and uh, it's just uh, amazing what you've been able to accomplish. But Don't tell my insurance company. Uh, I won't. I won't mention a word. I will not mention a word. So getting down to, uh, to politics for a little while here, it's, it, it'll be boring compared to what we just talked about. But, uh, you know, as we look uh, ahead a little bit uh, and, and beyond the midterms of uh, particular concern in this state, of course, is the status of our first in the nation presidential primary. Uh, where do we stand uh, at the moment? There's been a lot of talk about it. Well, it's twofold. OK, so we have our own state law. And our state uh, elections are run by the state. And so um, we're going to continue to have a first-in-the-nation presidential primary. The question is whether or not the Democratic Party will sort of sanction it. And right now there's discussions about whether or not they're going to sort of give the blessing to New Hampshire being first, or they're going to sort of say that a state like Michigan, for example, should go first. Um, If that were to happen, and I don't think it actually will, I I have great confidence in our delegation that goes and, and works with the party, national party. But we would still continue to, to hold a presidential primary first. We may not, you know, the Democrats may not be able to seat our delegates at the convention. They'll sanction us in some way. But the truth is, is that candidates will vote with their feet, right? So we're already seeing this. And I have to tell you, without disclosing a lot of information, which I can't right now, there's six or seven Republican presidential candidates coming into the state this fall. Um, And we have, I think, some real interest on the Democratic side, too. There's been a slow trickle of information regarding whether or not the president's going to run for re-election. And whether he decides to or not, uh, the truth is, is that he doesn't have high approval ratings. He's vulnerable to a primary challenge, in my opinion. And if that were to take place, it would probably take place here in New Hampshire. So... You know, they've got to, the National Democrats actually sort of have to be a little bit careful in the fact that, okay, they say, well, this state will be first, not New Hampshire. But then if the president were to be challenged, um, those candidates, I, I still believe, would come here. So I have, to sum it all up, uh, the primary is going to continue. I have great faith that it will. And, um, and the candidates are already arriving, so it's already taking place. So why would you say the uh, possible challengers to President Biden from the Democratic side uh, would be campaigning here in New Hampshire rather than, uh, as you mentioned, a state like like Michigan? Well, I think that they will come to a state like New Hampshire because it's a small state. The president um, came in fifth last time. Uh, He, I think, would be vulnerable to a challenge for somebody on the ground meeting candidates and being a good communicator this is the perfect state for that and we've seen this before you know you if if you were a democrat and you want to challenge the president or just start running for president not waiting on his decision on 2024 uh this is the state you would do it and i think that uh going into 2024 we've seen this slow trickle so last week i guess it was this week the new york times on monday disclosed that uh, most Democrats, I think it was 
in the 70s uh, do not believe the president should run for re-election. Those are Democrats. Right. And uh, whether it be age or the economy or whatever the factor is. And the problem the president has is sort of getting out of that trough. And sometimes presidents can do it because there's an outside circumstances that change or uh, the president is able to communicate in a way and change it. Harry Truman famously got out of a trough having a good communications plan. And I don't necessarily see that happening right now. Uh, if anything, I see it sort of going backwards. And I think this New York Times poll, remember, this is not a Fox News poll. It's right. a New York Times right. poll. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it shows that a lot of Americans believe the country's on the wrong track. And when people believe that the country's on the wrong track, that in, in an overwhelming way, I think that that sets up that the president is vulnerable. Now, this is nothing you know, against the president in, in a partisan manner. I'm saying this can happen on both sides. Uh, the facts are the facts, and you have to weigh this and try to figure out a way to get out of it. And the White House in the recent past hasn't been able to sort of say, okay, these are the facts. We're going to change direction here to try to change this. If anything, they sort of double down and continue on the pathway, and I see that that's what they're doing now. The president denied that he even... Um, he said 92% of Democrats would vote for him for re-election. He kind of denied the polling to some reporters. Um, but there's definitely a slow trickle of people who are chatting about the fact that the will the president run, should he run, and who's on the bench. And the bench is not particularly deep. Well, that is true. I guess that is the uh, the concern, and uh, the poll numbers for Vice President Harris could perhaps be even lower than the the polling number or the uh, the approval numbers for President Biden. They have been, and she hasn't been able to seem a, a, a way to get out of that. Um, you know, the vice presidency is a tough job. Some people say. <laughs> like going to funerals and taking on terrible assignments. But in the very beginning, she, she agreed she wanted to take on some assignments that I think in politics were probably very, uh, were things that you really almost couldn't overcome. And, and, and as a result, it hasn't been good for her. Neil Levesque is with us. Uh, Neil is the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College. Uh, Neil, can you hang with us for a couple of minutes? We have to take a quick break. It is uh, Kale and Company live right here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in Concord. Our big new signal in the Manchester area, 101.9. And you can stream us around the clock, nhtalkradio.com. We'll be back with Neil Levesque right after these words. So don't you dare go anywhere. Welcome back. It's a Friday. Kale and Company live here on WKXL. And our guest this morning, the executive director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College, uh, Neil Levesque. And, of course, the uh, midterm elections will be on us uh, sooner than we think. Uh, and uh, the primary in, in New Hampshire coming up on September 13th. And uh, locally, Neil, a, a very crowded Republican primary field in District 1 as uh, the Republican hopefuls uh, look to knock off uh, the incumbent. Chris Pappas, has uh, 
any of the candidates uh, separated themselves from the field at, at this point? Well, we have uh, Matt Mowers, who uh, was running last time, so he has a little bit of an edge in the fact that, you know, some name recognition there. And some of the other folks who have done some tremendous uh, fundraising, Carolyn Levitt being one of them. Gail Huff Brown is known through New Hampshire for a lot of different reasons, including being on the television for a while as a as a reporter. Um, but I think that this is going to come down to the razor's edge, where there's only so many people voting in this primary, and it's Republicans and independents can vote, and 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 who will sort of eke it out, and it could be something as small as 500 votes or 1,000 mm. votes. But right now, it seems like there's there's the race on the money and with the activists, but not a lot of sort of commercial activity as far as paid media. So we'll wait to see as we get towards that September primary how much that ramps up. You know, campaign managers traditionally say you work backwards from the camp, from the election day, and you want to do your spending Obviously, when people are thinking about the election and it's close by, but the problem with that theory is that voters don't really know who you are until that period, and voters uh, a lot of the times get deluged with all kinds of media as you get, and we're going to experience this. So late August is going to be an interesting experience with a lot of television, radio, all kinds of web ads that will be coming through. Uh, as we go towards the September primary. Yeah, all the uh, radio, TV, and newspaper outlets are looking forward to that uh, time, Neil, as, as you well know. Uh, <laughs> currently, uh, seven uh, Republican candidates in, in District 2 looking to oust uh, Annie Custer uh, in November, but has anybody ever heard of them? Well, that's a good question, but, uh, you know, Hansel, who's the mayor of Keene, uh, an interesting person to run. Keene is a Democratic city, and he's a Republican. Yeah. Uh, he's raised a record amount of money. He has the support of Governor Sununu right from the gate, like they're they're joined at the hip. And uh, I think that this could be an interesting situation because Custer um, never really polls very strongly, yet, to her credit, she always wins elections. And she's done so, I believe this is her term. And so, you know, going into this election, if she gets caught up in an anti-Biden type wave, uh, it could be uh, trouble for her. The district is more Democratic than the first congressional district. But I think that um, in this situation, there could be other factors such as Roe versus Wade and how much that decision has on the voters that are going to go to the polls because it could be a strong motivating factor for people. So we'll see. Uh, a lot of things at work here. Um, testing, meaning surveying or polling for abortion and issues like that or guns is very hard because there are people that will say, well, you know, I'm, I didn't like the Roe versus Wade decision, but they may still vote uh, for a candidate that may be pro-life. But um, then there are other people who say, not only am I mad about this, I'm going to get 10 of my friends at the polls, I'm going to donate money, put up signs, you know, do everything I can for candidates that support, you know, this decision or, or against this decision. So 
determining that motivation is a very hard thing to test for. Yeah, no question about it. So moving on to the uh, the Senate race, the U.S. Senate seat, uh, Maggie Hassan's seat is uh, up for grabs in uh, November. There are currently 10 candidates uh, for the uh, for the September 13th primary on the Republican side, and including uh, General Don Bolduck, uh, Kevin Smith, Chuck Morse, uh, Bruce Fenton. They've been uh, getting most of the publicity. Neil, who's going to survive that primary? Well, I think it's a jump ball right now. I think Bolduck ran last time, and I think that there, if, if anything, this has been a little bit sleepy for most of us. I mean, I'm I'm I follow politics, and I think it's been a little bit sleepy. So I think that at this point, um, you know, Bolduck will probably would continue to have a lead as he has in the past with our polling. But I think again, as we get into this August period, early September. That all changes when the money that they've been raising with some of the candidates you just mentioned uh, all of a sudden starts to appear in in radio, television, and web ads, and that will potentially have a big impact on this race. I think that the incumbent, has Senator Haston, they've spent a lot of money against potential candidates last year on Sununu or it, for her being a pro-candidate. They just shifted gears. Um, now they're portraying an ad where she's a fiscal, she, reminding her that um, she was the governor of New Hampshire and portraying her period as being fiscally responsible. So it's interesting because you have Democrats who, you know, a year or two ago were talking about more and more spending, and you remember Manchin was holding this up, and he was sort of, uh, you know, the black sheep down in Washington because he was worried about inflation and overly stimulating the economy. And now we've sort of seen this shift now where, you know, we're, we're, we're hearing a message about fiscal conservatives and things like that. But it'll be interesting because they, her numbers have remained consistent, even though uh, some estimates have it at 30 million has been spent on her behalf. Somebody else said, uh, our news report said $40 million so far on her behalf, but her numbers have remained the same. So that's interesting, and she's going to get dragged down with this Biden, you know, wrong track number, because when people feel that the country's on the wrong track, they tend to vote against the incumbent. Yeah, and uh, boy, she has, uh, has spent a lot of money. I mean, uh, really, she's the only uh, candidate that uh, we have mentioned thus far that has uh, spent any kind of money. And as you said, she spent uh, a lot of it on uh, television ads uh, here in New Hampshire and uh, and in Boston, too. That's right. So a lot of the theory is, is that if a candidate emerges from the Republican primary who uh, cannot be portrayed as an extremist or crazy, uh, sort of like they did with Yunkins down in Virginia, where Yunkins was sort of this guy that wore a fleece vest and went to soccer games on the weekends and sort of understood parents and things like that. Uh, he got a Trump endorsement, but he didn't embrace Trump to the extreme. And uh, he was able to win in Virginia. And that was a big upset. And I think that the theory goes that if a candidate emerges from that September primary on the Republican side, that sort of like Youngkin's type of candidate, that they could potentially um, unseat the incumbent. But we'll see. She's won a lot of elections and can't count her out, that's for sure. We're hearing... uh, 
Go ahead. Things now. can happen between now and November that can completely shift. Yeah, no the doubt. Electorate. We're hearing more and more about uh, Bruce Fenton. I, I see more Fenton signs out on the roads now than I see of uh, any other uh, can- Republican candidate uh, in that race. Does he have the, the deepest pockets of any candidate on the Republican side? Well, it's hard to, to know because he's he's claimed that he's going to self-fund a lot of this campaign, although he shifted and said that he's going to take donations. But um, he was the most energetic in the debate that was held here a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. at the Institute of Politics. Yep. Um, and he really sort of, he does capture a lot of this anger, I think, that exists amongst Republican activists or core Republican voters who are mad about incumbents who say they're going to do things that don't. And he really lashed out at uh, the Senate president, Chuck Morris, during that debate in a very fiery way. Uh, and so I think that that's gotten some attention. And if you combine, you know, a good message with the potential of the fact that he has some, apparently some deep pockets, I don't know that, you know, I, don't, I can't check on people's bank accounts. Thankfully, no one can check on my bank account. And, and, and so it's hard to figure out, you know, people can say they have a lot of money and they're going to drop a lot of money in a campaign, but they, if they don't, they don't. Neil Levesque, we're going to have to wrap it up this time around, but it's uh, great to have you back on WKXL. Always uh, a, a great pleasure to talk to you and find out about your outdoor activities and uh, hope you'll be a, a frequent flyer here on uh, Kale and Company Live. Looking forward to it. I love doing interviews with you, Ken. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Neil. Neil Levesque, Executive Director of the New Hampshire Institute of Politics at St. Anselm College here on WKXL, the program Kale and Company Live on your radio every Monday through Friday, 8 to 9 in the morning. Great to have you along with us. Another special guest coming right up, so you won't want to miss it if you like football especially. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM, booming into Manchester and beyond and around the clock on nhtalkradio.com. Well, the new book is called 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. The author of that book is with us right now, Marshall John Fisher. Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good. Thanks. It is uh, great to have you with us. And of course, the uh, 50th anniversary of that season is upon us. And uh, you know, for those who uh, weren't around in 1972, I was, uh, and I know you were as well. It was a, uh, a very turbulent time. It was. And uh, in this in this book, I, I talk about just not just about this incredible team, the only perfect team ever in the NFL, but also about Miami and at that time, which was sort of a focal point for a lot of uh, what was going on in this country. There, uh, both political conventions that year were held on Miami Beach, last time that happened. Yeah. And um, the Watergate investigation was just getting going. The Vietnam War was still raging. Uh, Richard Nixon was in Miami a lot because he had, had his winter White House at Key Biscayne. 
So uh, a, a lot was going on uh, in, around this team as they were going through this perfect season. A lot about Richard Nixon uh, in this book, and including uh, a picture of uh, a very young Richard Nixon uh, warming the bench for Whittier College, his alma mater. Yeah. This was back in 1933. He's pictured wearing number 12, which th- there was a quarterback uh, in New England uh, for a while that, that, that wore that number. So uh, he, he preceded that. You know, it, it, Marshall, many don't remember uh, or, or never knew that this Miami team was only in its seventh season when they completed this incredible journey. Yeah, it's true. They, uh, um, in fact, my family moved down there in '66 when I was three, and that was right as they began their first preseason. So, uh, yeah, they had been down there for six years, beginning their seventh year. Of course, the first few years are, as for most expansion teams, uh, you know, are difficult. So, <laughs> yeah, the first few years they didn't win a lot of games. But they were uh, collecting some of these players who were going to be part of this championship team. And then the big change was in 1970 when Don Shula came down. Owner Joe Robbie was able to get Don Shula from the Baltimore Colts to come down and be the, uh, the coach of the Dolphins. And Shula was already the premier coach of football, although he had never gone all the way and won the big game. Um, and he, he brought in or, or drafted and traded for a lot of new players as well. And he turned them around immediately and, they got to the playoffs in 70, his first year. Got to the Super Bowl in 71, but they lost badly to Dallas. And that, that was the catalyst that just made him absolutely obsessed with getting back and winning, finally winning the big game. That's what they did the next year. And although a very successful coach before uh, coming uh, to, to Miami, uh, Don Shula was not the league's winningest uh, coach of all time at that point. And, uh, you know, he had a team that had something to prove, having lost the Super Bowl uh, the year before. And uh, Shula really came in with a, with a big chip on his shoulder. He did. And, there, you know, there are a lot of parallels between him and Richard Nixon, which I, I talk about. And uh, that's one of them. Because, you know, Nixon, when he uh, lost, uh, the 1960 election and then the 62 gov- gubernatorial election. That's when he said he's gone and, you, you know, you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. And they always said Nixon couldn't win the big one. And the same thing was true of Shula. He was the youngest head coach in the NFL up in Baltimore. And he became known as the best coach, but even though he never quite went all the way, he lost the Super Bowl up there. And then he came to Miami and lost another Super Bowl. And uh, everyone was saying he couldn't win the big one. And in fact, Nixon wrote him a letter uh, saying how don't worry, you know, I, this is how I felt back in 62, and, you know, I, came, I, I was able to go all the way in 68, so I'm sure you will, too. Yeah, no doubt, and uh, it was perhaps the, the most unlikely team to achieve uh, you know, the NFL's only perfect season. Certainly had an incredible cast of characters. I mean, if someone uh, made a movie with a, with a cast like this one, it would be uh, hard to believe, beyond belief. Yeah, uh, it's a very unusual group of men, uh, and they were overall they were a very highly un- unusually intelligent group for you know for an NFL team. They were smart guys. They a lot of them were not that big or fast for their position, but they were tough and smart and made the most of what they had. And they also had a lot of great characters, as you say. We, you know, <laughs> it could be a great movie because you have people like Jim Kick and Larry Zonka, yeah. known as Butch and Sundance at the time, and, and they you know were really fun loving party guys, and you have the conservative crew-cut types like Bob Greasy and Earl Morrill and Howard Twilley, and, and then you have uh, sort of the, 
the liberal faction, uh, Doug Swift, who played for Amherst College and somehow got a tryout in Miami and became the Dolphins' starting linebacker for his whole career. And he was a, a very liberal uh, guy and kind of at odds with some of the other ones politically. But all these different kinds of characters came together and messed really well as a team. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. And uh, you, you alluded to him just a, a moment ago. Really, the uh, savior uh, of this team was uh, an, an extremely unlikely hero, and that was the veteran Earl Morrill. Yeah, he had been – Earl Morrill was 38 years old uh, in 1972. He was older than most of the coaches on the team. Yeah. He was almost <laughs> as old as Shula, who was 40. Uh, or uh, 42, actually. Um, but uh, he had been Shula's uh, backup quarterback up in Baltimore, where he was uh, the backup for Johnny Unitas. And in fact, he had done a similar thing up there in 1968 when Unitas was out all year. He came in and had a great year for Baltimore. So Shula brought him down at age 38 just to be a backup, just in case. No one expected him to play much. But then Greasy broke his ankle in uh, game five, the one game that my family was able to go to in the Orange Bowl. And uh, we saw him wheeled out on a stretcher, and everyone thought, well, that's probably it for the season. You know, not, it's not going to be that great a season anymore. But Earl Morrill just came in very calm. He was so experienced, and he was a terrific quarterback himself, and he won 11 straight games right in the middle of that perfect season. Uh, truly uh, an incredible story. And uh, it, you, you mentioned uh, you know Jim Kick, Larry Zonka, the uh, Butch and Sundance, as they were known at that time, as well as a very gifted uh, runner out of the backfield and Mercury Morris. How did they all coexist? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, you had uh, three outstanding running backs. How, how do they, uh, they work together? Well, that was the big story of the year and the controversy of the year because um, it was it was difficult, but they made it work. Um, Mercury Morris was, as you say, an incredibly talented runner. He uh, uh, in college he had set the NCAA all-time rushing record uh, until OJ Simpson over, overcame it. But uh, he came out of college, you know, one of the two best runners in the country. He and OJ Simpson, and he came to Miami, uh, and for three years he got very few carries and. Uh, he finally exploded after when they lost to Dallas in Super Bowl six, and he got no carries at all. He kind of lost his temper in front of the press, and he went to Shula, and Shula said, "All right, I'm fine. I'm, next year I'm giving you your shot. I promise." And he did. And Morris took advantage of it, and you know he he worked his way in. He and Kick ended up sharing the running back position next to Zonka, the fullback. And Mercury Morris gained a thousand yards. It was the first time any team had had two thousand yard runners. And he was just such a thrilling runner that he, there's no one like him. The way when he got the ball, it wouldn't stand up, you know, because he would jitterbug around and run. He was so fast and so exciting. So he gave them that extra dimension. And he was also, uh, like a lot of other players, a really intelligent guy. And a, as people have learned over the years, he's a, he's a funny and very quotable character. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. And uh, you know, so many characters uh, on that team. One that uh, immediately came to my mind uh, was the kicker slash tie maker from Cyprus, uh, Garo Yupremian. Yeah, Garo. The one uh, play that everyone seems to remember from Super Bowl Seven, when the Dolphins finished their perfect season, yeah. was uh, was Yupremian's big blunder. Uh, he was lining up for a pretty makeable field goal uh, to make the score 17-0 at the end of the game for, to end a 17-0 season. And it was just under uh, about two minutes left. And he kicked it right into his line. The ball bounced back to him. He tried to throw a pass instead of just falling on it. 
The ball went straight up in the air. When it came down, he made things worse by batting it up again like a volleyball. And finally, finally, Mike Sass of the Redskins grabbed it and went the other way for a touchdown. And it made uh, what really was a kind of a blowout Super Bowl into a very tense, uh, tight ending. Yeah. But uh, he made the most of that. He was a very funny guy and a good sense of humor. And he kind of made a second career out of making fun of his own blunder. Marshall John Fisher is with us. Can you hang on for a couple of minutes? Yeah, sure. We have to take a quick break here. The new book is 17 and 0, Miami. 1972 and the NFL's only perfect season. Much to the chagrin of uh, Patriots fans everywhere, but it's a terrific read and Marshall John Fisher will uh, join us right after we take a quick break here. Kale and Company live on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in Concord and vicinity, 101.9 FM in the Manchester area and streaming around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. We will be right back. Kale and Company live on this Friday on WKXL and all of its platforms, including nhtalkradio.com. So pleased to have with us today Marshall John Fisher, the new book, 17 and 0, Miami, 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. And uh, as we look back uh, on this, uh, I, I always found it uh, kind of ironic. Uh, of course, the Patriots came closest to joining the Dolphins uh, as perfect, but uh, we won't uh, dwell on that. Uh, but it's kind of ironic that uh, one of Miami's top defenders in 1972 was a, a former Patriot and Nick Bonacotti. Absolutely. He was the, he was the, the field general of that defense, the captain. Uh, Nick Bonacotti was a great Played from Springfield, Massachusetts. He grew up there and uh, went played for Notre Dame, and then was drafted by the AFL's Patriots, the Boston Patriots, and uh, yeah. was a all, AFL All Pro for them for years. Uh, I think he played seven years there, uh, or, or maybe it was more than that. And uh, anyway, he was traded to uh, Miami, and uh, he did not want to go down. He wanted he was ready to retire pretty much and 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 start his law practice because he had gone to Suffolk Law School in the off-seasons and become a lawyer. So he was just about ready to retire and become a lawyer. And Joe Robbie convinced him uh, to come down to Miami and accept the generous contract he offered him. And Nick Bonacani did, and uh, I think he was grateful for that. He had made that choice for the rest of his life. He had great years with the Dolphins and then a nice life in Miami. He had a nice law practice in Miami uh, after that. But uh, he was a great player. He was, like a lot of other the Dolphins, he was smaller and uh, not, maybe not as fast as you might want for a pro football player of his position, but he had heart and he had intelligence and toughness and just a great middle linebacker. You know, it's funny, you in, in South Florida, I watched Nick Bonacani was at, at Fenway Park uh, playing yeah. for the Patriots, the Boston Patriots, uh, back in the old yeah. AFL days, and, and, and you watched him as a youngster as well playing uh, for the Dolphins. Uh, lot, lots of great stories here. I mean, just too, too numerous to mention, but uh, I, you mentioned in the book where uh, one player who was uh, traded to Green Bay the year after the perfect season uh, compared playbooks of the Dolphins and Packers, uh, he felt that uh, he had gone from, from Harvard with the Dolphins to high school with the Packers. Yeah, that's the thing. They, they, as I said, they were a smart team, and they had yeah. a, a complex offense and defense as well. They had a very smart defense. Uh, uh, the quarterback for the Colts said that year how the Jets 
showed me two different looks. The Dolphins showed me 22 looks. And uh, <laughs> another another coach said they give you the impression they always know what you're going to do. They had a brilliant defensive coach, Bill Arnsparger, and and uh, a great a great offense as well. Just a, a, a really smart team. And as you mentioned, uh, many of the Dolphins uh, went on to achieve uh, great heights uh, later in life. Yeah, um, like Nick Bonacotti, you yeah. know, such a successful lawyer and businessman. Uh, Doug Swift, the, the Amherst graduate, became a, a doctor. He was a cardiologist. Um, they had people go into politics successfully and a lot of successful businessmen. Um, so, yeah, they, they really, uh, their mot- and I think a lot of it was the kind of motivation they had to succeed in football carried off in carried over into real life as well. Yeah, no no doubt about that. Uh, unfortunately, though, uh, you know, some of, of these players from that 72 team wound up with dementia and uh, other concussion-related uh, brain disorders. Yeah, you know, they, they were a very unique and different kind of team, but uh, like all NFL players, they were they had the same uh, acceptability to brain injury from, the, from this brutal sport, and um, a lot of them did suffer... And some have died from uh, from uh, CPE, uh, Earl Morals, uh, Jim Kick, Nick Bonacotti, uh, several others have had it. And uh, it is sad. A lot of them are gone now. But, but um, the others, you know, some are doing great as well. Yeah, oh, no doubt about it. Now, you, you followed the team as a young man in, in South Florida. And, uh, what, what did you learn in, in researching this, uh, this once-in-a-lifetime season that you, that you didn't know uh, prior to putting all, all the work into, into this book? Yeah, a lot, uh, a lot of things that surprised me. Um, some little things, just like uh, I didn't realize that Morris had played so little before 72, which was shocking. Um, I, was just, I was surprised. Yeah, I was just a young kid then, nine years old that year. And I, I didn't realize how much racism there still was in, in the Miami area in the late 60s and early 70s when this team was forming. Uh, it really was a different time. Um, and uh, it, was, it was difficult for a lot of the black players uh, to come to Miami uh, in, in the late 60s. And uh, one thing Don Shula did was integrate the team. Uh, you know, before he arrived, the, the locker room would be integrated. They had all the black guys would be on one side of their lockers and the white guys on the other side. And they all, whites only roomed with whites and blacks with blacks and in training camp and on the road. And Don Shula changed all that immediately. As soon as he came in, he assigned roommates and, and, and purposely mixed the races for roommates and also uh, integrated the locker room. So that was something I had never you know, remembered having been just a, a kid at the time. Yeah, I mean, these are some of the things you, you don't realize, uh, you know, when you're a kid. I grew up in the Boston area. I never realized, uh, you know, that Boston was considered a racist city. But you don't you don't think of these things uh, sometimes right. when you're when you're young. And, uh, and so, so what brought you to Massachusetts? Uh, well, I came up here to go to college. I went to Brandeis, and yeah. uh, and then later I lived in New York, and then I lived in New Boston for a long time. Uh, and met my wife there, and we've been uh, living out in the Berkshires now for 23 years. You lived in East Boston, huh? Uh, not East Boston. We lived in uh, well, I lived in uh, came, uh, Alston and oh, Somerville. And okay, all the all the places young people live. There, there, there you go. I, I grew up in Melrose, so not too far away. Okay, not too far yeah. away. So the reviews from from this book, uh, I have just been uh, amazing. From from some. Uh, you know, very famous people in, in the world of sports and beyond. And uh, what, what's next for you? Uh, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm next few months. I hope to be, you know, publicizing this book. And uh, uh, I'm not sure what the next project will be. 
Yeah. Well, we look forward to it, whatever it might be, because this is an incredible read. And uh, for someone like myself who grew up uh, in that era, uh, you know, it has so many anecdotes and and stories that, uh, you know, certainly I wasn't aware of and probably most people were not, even if they were a follower of football at that time. But it is terrific and uh, great work. And we encourage people to uh, read 17 and 0, Miami 1972, and the NFL's only perfect season. I'm going to put you uh, put your feet to the fire right here now. Will there ever be another one? Well, you know, <laughs> it's funny. Dave Anderson of the New York Times, right after it happened, he said, the Dolphins have done it. No one will ever do it again. Because the formula is too, too complex. And Shula threw away the formula. But, of course, as we know, the Patriots came within a whisker of doing it. Oh, and uh, Even though it gets harder and harder as they add games and they add rounds in the playoffs, you know, that, that just makes the odds harder and harder. But, you know, if they play NFL football long enough, someone will do it someday. But I don't think it's going to happen soon. No, I, I think you're absolutely right about that. Uh, Marshall, John Fisher, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate your time, and uh, best of luck with the book. Thank you, Ken. I really enjoyed talking to you. All right. Thanks so much for being with us. Marshall John Fisher and uh, Miami 1972. A lot. It's a, more than than football in this book, as we alluded to, because 1972 was a very uh, turbulent time in this country's history, and the only uh, perfect season in the NFL completed 1972-73 is when the Super Bowl was actually played. Uh, but uh, 1972 season 17 and 0 for the Miami Dolphins. It is Kale and Company. Thanks to uh, Marshall John Fisher for being with us in the first segment we have the opportunity to chat with neil levesque the executive director of the new hampshire institute of politics at uh, saint anselm college uh this t- from today's uh, edition of the concord monitor new hampshire ranks 35th number 35 in business friendliness This is from uh, Jeff Feingold in the New Hampshire Business Review. I thought we'd be higher than that. A newly released list from CNBC doesn't contain very good news for New Hampshire and its self-image as a business-friendly state. In its rankings of America's top states for business 2022, the cable business news channel put New Hampshire firmly among the lower third of states. Ranking the Granite State at number 35, CNBC said it scored the states using 88 metrics in 10 categories of competitiveness with each category weighted based on how frequently the states use them as a selling point in economic development uh, marketing materials. In a note, the channel says the study is not an opinion survey because it uses data from a variety of sources to measure the state's performance. All of the ranks uh, uh, all New Hampshire received in the different categories were mediocre or worse, except for three. The state was ranked number six for business friendliness, uh, eighth for education, and 15th in life, health, and inclusion uh, categories. Other New Hampshire rankings in separate categories, workforce 22, infrastructure 47th, 47th in the country. Cost of doing business, uh, ranked 32nd. Economy, 29. Technology and innovation, 39, which also uh, surprises me. Business readiness, well, number six 
in business readiness. Uh, access to capital, 48th in the country. And cost of living, 37. What do you think the uh, top ranking states were? Number one, North Carolina, followed by Washington State. Highest ranking in New England, Massachusetts at number 24. Vermont, 31st. New Hampshire came in number 35. Well, it's been a fun week. Glad you could join us here on Kale & Company Live. Stay tuned for some great programming.